episode dedication to Hudson. I hope you're still out there, man. The following audio presentation contains language and subject matter that may not be appropriate for the little ones. Don't act like nobody warned you. The views and opinions of correspondents may not necessarily reflect those of the Ushery Network. Now enjoy yourself. I worked there for a short time when the drum shop shut down and I was lamenting not having a job. Terry was like, well, hell, I'll pay you so-and-so amount to 10 bar, you know, during the day. And then one time these guys in suits came in and there was a band setting up and there was all these people milling around and Terry happened to be there at that point. And these guys came looking around, and then they walked over to Terry and said a few things, and he's like, okay, and then they handcuffed him. And he walks over to him and goes, ah, get the money out of the register there and stick it in my pocket, and I gave him all the money. All right, I got a whole bar full of people. Gave him all the money, and he, he's like, uh, go to the phone book here, there's a bail bondsman, you know. So he, he, he made arrangements, and then he left, and I'm like, what the hell, and I, I'm freaking out because, you know, this is not part of the gig. I don't know what to do. Uh, what happened? Was there a drug deal that went down and I didn't see it? Or, but it turns out that they came in and they, they busted him for the stickers on the pinball machines were like out of date or something. And they were just really hassling him. And they, they were just trying to, you know, bilk him for money because obviously he had a ton of it, right? It was crazy. And so... <laughs> It, when he finally came back, hours later, you know, people had loaned me money to put in the register so I could, you know, make change, and, hey, the PA's not working, and, you know, <laughs> just crap like that. And when he got back, I was like, so, Terry, what would have happened if uh, you hadn't have been here? He said, oh, they would have just taken you. Network Studio, Mississippi, USA. This is Play Dead, the Jackson, Mississippi music scene of the 80s and 90s. And this is episode one, Talk to God. My first grade teacher was Mr. Nye. His breath smelled like sardines and onions on rye. Hello, party people. My name is Jason Lee Ussery, and I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. And I'm here to tell you a little story. Actually, many stories. You know what? Scratch that. I'm mostly here to let a lot of other great storytellers tell their stories. But I'll kick it off like this here. As a young man, I obsessed over movies and music. Therefore, I worked in video rental stores and record stores. As for the young film and music enthusiasts in 2019, I have no idea what those poor bastards do. That's neither here nor there. For a time, I worked for an establishment called Bebop on County Line Road in Jackson. I was going through a particularly awkward period at that point and didn't really care to interact with the general public. So this was a perfect little gig. I worked in Bebop's warehouse in the back. That's where they kept the undesirables, I guess. I would spend every day boxing and unboxing and organizing CDs. And that should give you some idea of the kind of business Bebop was doing in those days. 
there was a staff devoted to unloading and keeping track of the countless pieces of merchandise running through there. This was in the late 90s, and the people running the place were a dude named Drake, never really spoke to me, a lady named Kathy, rarely spoke to me, a lady named Anne, who always spoke to everyone. My immediate supervisor was some kind of nympho. I honestly cannot remember her name. She dug music as much as the rest of us, but could not process it as anything other than a soundtrack for going at it. You'd put on like prints and she'd go, oh yeah, I can get busy with some prints on. You'd play, say, cool in the gang. Okay, yep, I can knock boots to that. Put on Oingo Boingo, how am I supposed to bang to this? It was a lesson for me, really. Music means different things to different folks. Myself, I've never really been a put music on to make naughty kind of person. It can be distracting. Once, many years ago, a girl put on Sarah McLachlan and climbed into bed. I was like, are you, are you serious? I, there's no way. I digress. I learned a lot from the bebop experience and especially from my coworkers, but I really wasn't aware of how important to my childhood some of those people really were. That lady, Kathy Womack, later Kathy Morrison, she and Drake, and a guy named Wayne Harrison are the Mount Rushmore of the Jackson music scene of the 80s and 90s. Are you allowed to say Mount Rushmore if you're talking about three people? In any case, I interviewed Kathy for this podcast series and asked if she ever imagined as a young child that music would play such a big role in her life. Or maybe, more importantly, that she would play such a big role in music. I mean, I was listening to the radio uh, from the time I started growing up and, you know, in the early 60s and and the Beatles and everything, you know, I just always loved music. I took piano lessons when I was a kid, but I, it, it didn't develop into much. I think I figured out that I didn't really have much talent for it. I probably figured out fairly early on that I was better at the business end than the actual making music end. So how did she and her two co-conspirators come together way back when? Okay, um, Drake and I went to high school together at Murrah mm-hmm. and then to college at Millsaps. We met Wayne around that time early 70s, when he was a, a DJ at uh, WZZQ. Just became friends in the same circle of friends. And later? Uh, well, Drake and I were graduating from college, and of course we didn't have jobs or anything. And Wayne uh, was working at the radio station, and he also had worked at a small record store. It closed and so we just started talking about um, opening a record store that we thought Jackson needed a good record store. Indeed, Jackson needed a good record store, and it also needed some music. Yes, as Kathy mentioned there, Wayne Harrison and the rest of the crew at WZZQ were keeping the rock rolling, as it were, but there wasn't much of a live scene, and none of the big acts playing on the radio were showing up to take the stage in the SIP. Before we opened the store, the first show we did was Dan Fogelberg, the, ra- 
radio station, and ZZQ was one of the few stations in the country that were playing that first record home free and were getting so many requests and there was so much interest in it that we decided that we would try to bring him to Jackson. So it was sold out and they couldn't believe it. It was at the city auditorium and it sold out and his manager couldn't believe it. I take it you folks in Mississippi like the country, huh? I live up in Tennessee now, as your neighbor, up in a place called Kingston Springs, Tennessee. I live on a little farm there with my ducks and my cats and occasional old ladies <laughs> come and go. I love the South. <laughs> no way to bad, man. That's right. The notorious FOG kicked it off and suddenly it was a thing. Uh, Marshall Tucker and Little Feet. They brought Bruce Springsteen here, I mean, in, you know, 1978. I mean, they got the ball rolling, and they knew what they were doing. We would go play six, eight blocks and see these and shit, you know? And, and Arden, Arden, who, of course, is Ardenland, he'll tell you himself that he, he would not be doing what he's doing if the Drake had not, because he hung around Drake. He learned everything from Drake Elder. You know, you could see the biggest rock bands in the world at the Jackson Coliseum. They would come mm -hmm. through the town, and you could afford a ticket. I could go cut my grandfather's yard and have enough money to go see Alice Cooper. Motley Crue and Jethro Tull, Kiss. If you were going to add a fourth to the aforementioned Mount Rushmore, it would probably have to be the legendary Malcolm White. And he will tell you himself. When I came to Jackson in 1979, I saw I saw. Wayne and Drake, and I'm like, I need, I need to get next to these two guys. They're doing what I want to do. One particular concert I remember going to was Ario Speedwagon. Wayne comes to the stage, because he would MC concerts sometimes back then, and mm -hmm. he comes up to the mic and says, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from Birmingham, England, Judas Priest. We went, who? They weren't even on the bill. They were so good. I was so impressed. I went out the next day and bought their album, this album called Sin After Sin. It was one of their first releases. But let's back it up a sec. Kathy, Drake, and Wayne started promoting, but also opened Bebop Record Shop. How'd they get the cash for all this? My brother tells me Bebop Record Shop was, was founded on a quarter pound of pie. That they bought a quarter pound of marijuana, and they kept turning it over and over and over. Look, that's just what a guy told me one time, okay? I ain't saying nan about nan. Anywho... The first Bebop location was in Jackson's Fondren District. I eat over there a lot, once lived there. But I wondered what it would have been like back in the 70s. Fondren wasn't the really uh, up, more up, it's upscale, trendy, redone like it is now. It was just another neighborhood part of Jackson with mm -hmm. a few stores. You know, the Woodland Hills Shopping Center was there, and there were businesses there that did well, and it had um, continued, and Walkers was there. Right away, the Treacherous Three hired an enormous crew to help run their new store. No, they were not able to do that. And it was it was basically just me and Drake working at the store mm -hmm. for the first year or so. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was... Uh, 
uh, we just put all of our uh, profits back into the business. I asked how the responsibilities were sort of divvied up. I always did most of the buying. Drake just did other stuff like handle advertising and things like that. You know, pretty equal thing, but I did the the record buying for sure. And um, he did a little bit of the accessory type buying, as we called it, the other stuff that wasn't music. Wait, what about Wayne Harrison? You know, he would come by and all, but he didn't necessarily work very much because he, he was at the radio station all day. Drake and Kathy ran the shop because they had more level-headed you know, business minds, whereas Wayne, he was a DJ for WZZQ, probably mm-hmm. their most popular one. Wayne was plugged into the public, so he was a great face for the store and a great ambassador. Kathy, Drake, and Wayne were onto something big, and they gained momentum very quickly. Well, the first store opened in April of 74, and then Ellis Avenue store, and the next year, I think it was 75, like in August of 75, and then Maywood opened in November of 76. This gimmick was well on its way to becoming a Jacktown institution and its impact on the future rock legends of the capital city cannot be denied. When I first moved to to Clinton slash Jackson in 1976, one of the first things I had to do was secure the knowledge of where do I buy my records. There's no way that they should be underestimated in terms of their uh, influence. Oh, man, I grew up shopping there as a child. I remember, this is going to be funny, you know, they had a location on Ellis Avenue, you know, and I grew up in West Jackson behind Westland Plaza in the 70s, you know, as a kid. And um, I would save, scrimp and save any money I came across until I got $5. And then I would beg my mother or sister to drive me to the bebop on Ellis. This would have been, you know, mid-70s to buy, uh, or even early 70s, mid-mid, I'd say to buy an LP because LPs at the time were $4.76 plus tax came to $5 even. I would say probably once a week I would hit Bebop. Hey, since the cast of characters is already beginning to stack up quite a bit here, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to three people who became what you might call major influencers on the scene. They're different in many ways. Their journeys to Jackson differ greatly, but interestingly, they are all connected to Bebop. I'm from a place called, um, it's a small town in Mississippi called M-E-A-D-V-I-L-L-E, Meadville. It's down around the Butte area between Macomb and Natchez. Deep south, back roads, one traffic light. Yeah, it was a very small place. I think the population was a little over a thousand, so small town. She is Sherry Cawthron, and you really can't talk about our subject matter here for this podcast Without her. I'm from a large family. There's six children. And my, I'm, I'm the youngest of six. So my older siblings were into music. Uh, old-timey country music. They would bring home all the... Uh, my older brother would bring home, like, Loretta Lynn records, Ernest Tubb. So I grew up as a child listening to that style of music. Did you like and that stuff, though? I loved it. I loved it. And then my other brother was a bit younger. He brought home eight tracks of the Rolling Stones and... And like Steppenwolf, and I loved it. And my sister, Brenda, she would bring home eight tracks of Carole King and the Carpenters. I loved it. So I was always around music, and I, I loved all of it. I found the pieces that I really liked. 
and then for the first time I had my own way. I was it was probably um back when punk hit uh I guess it was around what seventy six and it hit towards mm-hmm. like uh in England and I caught track of that. I used to watch the Tom Snyder show as a child. Or as a as a, as a I guess teenager. And because uh, they had all sorts of musical guests on there, which I, I knew nothing about. So I was discovering new music. And they had a segment about punk rock, and I thought, wow. So I, for the first time, I felt like this is my music. So um, still, still loving all the other. I sort of bringing that into the mix, too. If you haven't picked up on this yet, Sherry was always kind of a music person. And I wanted to play guitar, and finally I kept asking for a guitar for Christmas every year. My mom and dad got me this acoustic guitar from a Western Auto store that's in Macomb. <laughs> and it was red. It wasn't a, a real guitar, but I've tried to play that forever. And then my sister, again, for graduation, bought me a Stratocaster. So I knew I was going to play in a band. Where I'm from, there's no musicians, really. No one cared about music in Meeple. A lot in terms of live music, there's, there's no bars there. So it's a dry county. So I just knew I had to do that. I was writing songs when I was between 14 and 16. So I already had my songs written. I needed to move to Jackson and get with the scene and get a band together and get it going. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, that road led her to Bebop Record Shop. I had contacted Carla Westcott, who was the uh, disc jockey in WZZQ, and I wasn't living here yet because she had a punk rock show in Jackson. So I listened to that. And I wrote her that I'm coming moving to Jackson. So she had sent me some information about some bands around town that we would go see, and most of them were cover bands, uh, places mm-hmm. like at the uh, dock, you know, just bands, but cover bands. When I got here, <clears throat> I had to get a job, so I wanted to work at the record store. So I met Wayne Harrison through somebody, I guess it was Carla. And he said, yeah, come on by, Kathy, I'll hire you. <laughs> so I went <laughs> by, and uh, I got the job, and uh, and that opened a a world of different bands to me that were, were playing live too and playing at parties. Of course, Sherry would go on to make herself known as an incredible performer and lyricist, but it should be noted that her influence extended beyond her writing, gigging, and recording. She ultimately became the Bebop employee in charge of the Cool Kids catalog, the indie stuff, the less commercial stuff. Original store that we had our like warehouse back there, we called it the cheese shop. Wayne, Wayne called it that. The small little room that we would price all the all the albums in. Um, I would work some there because you know people would call in sick, but I was mainly behind the counter doing inventory. Um, then slowly I got kind of more in the back, which was where Kathy and Drake and all that kind of operation went. So, and then the indie buyer, um, I think it was Corey at the time, he moved and. Uh, they wanted somebody to, to to be the manager for you know you know the, the independent music buyer, so I jumped at that chance and then became the warehouse manager. So, obvi, we're focusing a lot on bebop here at the beginning, but there were other businesses which became fixtures of the scene, and we'll cover them all in Play Dead. But the biggest juggernaut of a music instrument dealer in these parts was Morrison Brothers Music. That store is connected to Bebop in a few ways, but most notably, the fact that Kathy Womack eventually became Kathy Morrison when she married Mike of the Morrison Brothers. My brother in music, so to speak, 
is a guy by the name of Chris Bogan. And the two of us used to visit Mobros like once a week, usually not buying anything. We wanted to talk to and get sort of approval from two dudes who work there, George Phillips and this guy. I am from Livermore, California. First went to college at uh, Cal State Chico. Chico used to be uh, classified like one of the best party towns, best college party towns in America. Of course, I was a, uh, a tournament water skier when I grew up. And there was a little water ski team in Chico. But then one of my... Um, one of my friends who was a, a tournament water skier as well uh, from the Bay Area, she wound up at Northeast Louisiana University in Monroe, Louisiana. And somehow the, she, the people there, the skiers there, they got the ear of the Dean for Student Affairs, Tom Murphy, and they, they, got some money to start up a water ski team. And then all of a sudden there was uh, scholarship money. And so I actually got a scholarship to go to Monroe, Louisiana, Northeast Louisiana University um, to be on the water ski team. And that water ski team um, has mostly dominated all other college water ski teams for the last, you know, 35 years. Uh, but that's what that's what brought me to the South. That is what has contributed to my current Southern accent. Of course, Don Morrison, no relation, was a fucking collegiate water skier. We moved to Jackson because um, my mentor, George Phillips, uh, used to live in Monroe, and I worked with him at Specially Sound in Monroe. And he moved to Jackson a couple of years before I did. And he recommended me to the Morrison brothers. He kept on to the Morrison brothers. Um, mm-hmm. And they, and Steve Morrison kept calling me over in Monroe and telling me to come over and work. The Don was for many years, the guy in Jackson who was most likely to sell you your new guitar. He played in bands. Yes. But really his importance to the story here. The real impact of the Don was the fact that he did what he did in our part of the world before Google and YouTube tutorials. From the most unlikely and untrained garage players to the polished and paid pros, they all sought help from Don. Another Jackson music legend, one I'll formally introduce in due time, probably provided the best description of Mr. Morrison. I don't know if you remember the song, What If God Was One of Us? Yes. I always sang, What If Don Was One of Us? Because he was, he was so above the fray. I mean, it was just, his cynicism was unmatched. I mean, it just, I love that. Uh, he could just cut you so easily. And guess what? Uh, I had a stint where I worked two jobs for a while. Um, I worked at Morrison Brothers, and then I worked um, at Bebop um, two evenings plus Sunday every week for about um, 15 months. When it comes to cool cats, the Don has some stiff competition from another Bebop front counter guy. I am a native Jacksonian. 
back to, uh, I grew up in West Jackson before moving south, and um, drums is the only instrument I've ever played. Um, mm-hmm. I started playing in the school band when I was eight or nine years old, and never looked back, and then I started playing kit when I was, I think, maybe 15, but I got a really solid, uh, like, snare drum rudimental background under me for well, however many years, that, seven or so years before that, so I was able to transition to the kit really easily, thanks to that, you know? Mm-hmm. I had the hands, I just had to work on the feet. And I had some really good teachers, you know, um, that were kind of band-related. I had a private instructor for rudimental snare drum stuff when I was, you know, 14 and made Lions All-State Band when I was 14, which is, looking back, I'm really proud of that accomplishment. And um, so, you know, it's, it's the only in- instrument I've ever played. My mother really wanted me to play piano and always was on me about it, you know. And But I wish, of course, I wish I would have now, uh, in addition to drums. But, uh, you know, as far as just just only playing the one instrument. You know, Alvin Fielder, Alvin's always said, you know, jack of all trades, master of nothing. Denny Burks, who went on to play drums for, a lot of people don't know this, every band ever always stood out at Bebop. And that's saying something. And much the way Don Morrison guided musicians for a commission, of course, Denny offered help to music lovers and music likers and music half-assers. I grew up working at Bebop Record Shop. I worked at the one at the Metro Center in the 80s, and then I worked at the one at Maywood Mart under Wayne Harrison. Rest his soul. Okay, let's go ahead and get back to the big three, Kathy, Drake, Wayne. The history of Mississippi music is of two traditions, black and white, coming along side by side and intermingling sounds and techniques. A new musical culture was created here. Mississippi music has had a tremendous impact on American popular music. Mississippians have blazed trails. That was Wayne hosting a video special on the Mississippi roots of American popular music. If you don't know already, this man, Wayne Harrison, was, you know what? I'll let these folks tell you. You know, when I first moved to Jackson, I didn't want to move. We, you know, my dad got transferred here. I was very lonely and and upset <laughs> that, that my life had been pulled from me. My dad was working at a radio shack and he gave me this little cube radio, FM with an antenna. And at night, you know, in my desperation, I'd listen to the radio, it was easy cue, and it was Wayne. Wayne's voice would come on and it was just this real soothing, and he was just the epitome of cool. And all the girls in the neighborhood just, you know, they were in love with him. They didn't know him. They probably didn't even know what he looked like. Uh, but in my, you know, fast forward to the uh, the early and mid-80s, uh, I got to hang out with him on several occasions. Uh, we had mutual friends and, and uh, got, to, got to party with Wayne. And it was one of those things where it was like, you know, damn, if those little girls could see me now, you know, I, I was just so proud of that. He quit working at the radio station and started working at Bebop full-time, probably in the um, late 80s. And if he was at a table with people, everybody was laughing, and he was, um, you know, guffawing and and speaking loudly and stuff. Wayne was just so amazing and cool and beautiful. And I wasn't, being he was a little older for one thing, and I just wasn't really in his inner circle of friends. But, um, like anybody would almost, you ask, whoever even ran into that beautiful man, 
he was always really positive to me, and he just always that man just knew how to make people feel better. He made me feel good. He was a great guy. I don't know. He had, had a huge aura about him. Big personality. I mean, you just loved Wayne right away. I first met Wayne when I was living in my hometown, Meadville. We had a party at a, at a like you know hut over there, some graduation party that I went to, and he was the disc jockey. And I thought, who was that guy? He's this guy with this wild black hair playing this great music. But up and talked to him. He said, oh, I'm a disc jockey at WCZQ. <laughs> so, okay, I thought, well, cool. And then when I moved to Jackson, um, Carla was friends with Wayne, and that's when I saw him again. I thought, wow, yeah, I remember you. He said, yeah, come on by. Wayne Wayne was, was so, I mean, he was such a music expert. He knew everything. He played everything. He was open to everything. He was, you know, he was a kind, kind person. And if you wanted anything to know about music, you just, you, just, you know, went and caught to, to, to Wayne. He went to all the concerts around the country. As far as the history, though, he knew his music. He was a disc jockey. He brought shows to town. He helped with Drake and Kathy bringing out those shows to Jackson in, in, in the mid-'70s. He just kept moving on through it. He just kept going, going, going. Wayne was a wild man. Wayne liked to party. He was fun-loving, people loved him, he was charismatic, but he liked to turn it up. Again, Malcolm White has played a huge part in the Jackson scene for decades himself, and we'll dig into that later. Suffice it to say, the guy has been there, done that, knows what the hell he's talking about. And here's what he had to say about Wayne Harrison. We were friends, we socialized a lot together, we went to the same parties, uh, He and we were in the same business. We were in the music business, and he was serious about that. He was a, a, a good time Charlie, but he was very serious about selling records and producing shows. Wayne has the, the, the quote that I use to this day when people say, man, can you get me a backstage pass? And this is what Wayne would say. I can get you backstage, but the show's out front. I mean, if you're here for the music, there ain't nothing going on backstage yeah. except schmoozing. Yeah. If you came for the for the music, the show's out front. And yeah. he would, I remembered that like something my father told me, like that ain't what that, that bullshit that's going on backstage is just bullshit. Now I've had some great backstage uh, experiences, many of which were made possible by Wayne. But when Stevie Ray Vaughan played. Thalia and his brother Jimmy and the Thunderbirds opened for him. Wayne got me backstage and I'm really grateful because I got to hear Jimmy and Stevie Ray talk about growing up in Jackson and that their mother had a 16 millimeter film of them at the Jackson Zoo when they were kids. And I've never seen that film, but to be able to sit there and to hear these two brothers talk about when they were kids and their mom took them to the Jackson Zoo. And, you know, it, it just sort of humanizes the whole thing. Like, these aren't rock stars. Mm -hmm. These are just a couple of brothers who mm -hmm. ended up in the music business. But Wayne, to me, uh, was incredibly knowledgeable because he sold records. So I would always call Wayne before I booked any show and say, man, do you think this band will draw? I never got a bullshit answer. He would say, Malcolm, I fucking love that band and I'll be 
on the front row, but there won't be anybody there. They do not sell in this market. So to me, Wayne was a sounding board. That's right. You got a little bonus SRV story in there, didn't you? Our babies would be proud. You always wanted Wayne at your show, because if, if Wayne was coming, then hundreds of other people were coming too, because they would go in the store and Wayne would say, so-and-so's playing at George Street tonight or at Skidmarks tonight or at Alamouse tonight. And he could almost guarantee, you know, he, he was a DJ yeah. by training, but, but even in his later life when he was off the radio, he was still a DJ because if he endorsed your show, it was going to be packed. So, you know, I had enormous respect for Wayne's uh, business acumen around the music and entertainment business, and I relied on him a lot for advice about who to book and sometimes how much to pay because, you know, he and Drake had brought in so many acts, mm -hmm. and, and they knew what the market was. You truly can't hear the respect and the fondness here. He was a plugged-in, uh, uh, super-energized, brilliant, bright light. Wayne was a celebrity, and he was surrounded by music celebrity. Uh, as sweet and kind as thoughtful as anybody that I've ever known. Yes, but he was loud as hell, Malcolm. But he didn't get loud to be uh, a jackass. He was just loud because he was just loud. He was a loud kid. Mm -hmm. He was the last guy on the dance floor. Uh, and when the party was over, there was always another party. He, w he was the king of the after party. Wherever Wayne went, everybody. Probably late 80s. Wayne, Harrison, and I were behind the counter at Bebop Maywood um, one morning around 10 o'clock probably. And this, this, this woman walks in and with her album. And I forget who the band was, but it was warped. And she said, I left this in, in the sun all day. I want to get a new copy of it. <laughs> and Wayne said, you can buy a new copy of it. <laughs> and I said, no, I want you to give me one, and I'll give you this one back. <laughs> and Wayne said, no. <laughs> and the woman said, what's in the sun? And Wayne said, don't believe it in the sun next time. <laughs> you know, so we kind of went back and forth a little bit on that. And the woman gets madder and madder about this. So she wants a new record. And and, you know, to swap it. And Dwayne says, no, it's not going to happen, lady. You know, Wayne. And, uh, and she said, I want to talk to somebody higher up than you. <laughs> Wayne said, <laughs> Wayne said, okay, talk to God. <laughs> Having spent a fair amount of time around Kathy and Drake, the more I learned about Wild Wayne Harrison, the harder it was for me to imagine the three of those people working together. But hey, must have been some magic there. You know, I was really good friends with Drake also. And, and I would ask Drake a lot of this same stuff. You know, sometimes I had to go to Drake, because Drake and I co-produced a lot of shows after Wayne passed. Drake was very quiet. Uh, he, he was a, a, a silent, kind of methodical, thoughtful, business, uh, soft-spoken guy. Wayne was loud and bombastic and motherfucker. And he was at every party, and he was the last one to go. Drake may be the last guy in the box office counting the, the money and settling up with the, with the manager. Mm -hmm. And Wayne might be the guy that's already in the dressing room drinking with the band. But Wayne knew. He had his finger on. He, he knew what worked and what didn't work. And so did, so did Drake. I, often I saw them as one person, 
though they were totally and completely different. The Don would like to point out that Kathy's importance to the triad should not be underappreciated. She had a bent for the new, the upcoming, but it didn't matter what genre. And of course, Kathy, my gosh, Kathy, I mean, you know, no one can top Kathy. She, she's done it all, she's seen it all, and she, she, she lives music. And, you know, wow, Kathy is amazing. And what she's done for the scene in Jackson. When I got the very, the first Better Than Ezra CD that had not made it out to the public, it was still on their own label. She and Mike Morrison and Steve Morrison were there. I can't remember if Drake was there or not, but I played it for him, and uh, she was like, wow, really impressed. And, you know, so she was active in in listening to new stuff and and totally interested in promoting new things, artistic things. My former Bebop co-worker, Chris Zuga, had an opposing view of Kathy at least when it came to her presence as a boss. I, th I think everybody, had, there was a certain amount of fear when Kathy got to work. <laughs> Again, I'm sorry, Kathy. I, I really I really do love you. <laughs> you know, that business thrived because of that. And, uh, I mean, you know, let's face it, the, the, the flip side of that coin was Drake. Mm -hmm. he had, like one of the most passive dudes I've ever worked for. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we had two instances of not necessarily agreeing on something and they were so minor it was ridiculous like the first time i ever met him i had written a note that, on, you know taken a phone message and wrote it on the back of an envelope for gift certificates when i gave it to him he asked me he said um was this was this a used envelope or a new one those are two cents a piece yeah zuga if you could find a more straightforward opinionated hilarious bebop staffer i would be shocked I understand everybody's doing their job. Everybody's trying to get their job done, and you've got a bunch of fucking fuck ups working for you. Let's be honest, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were a riff raff, you know, <laughs> rabble, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But I mean, you know, we weren't all going to go get jobs at like, you know, freaking the bank, that's for sure. Zuga got along with folks, though, mostly. Everybody involved in that place I have pretty fond memories of. I can't think of anybody who just. I, there was one dude at Maywood when I worked there uh, that was just a, a tool. You know, Stover, Sterling, up, and I'm pretty sure with a name like that, you were born with at least a, a, a decent metal spoon in your mouth. I should mention, Chris Zuga is now the owner and operator of a shop called Comic Commander, and there was some construction going on there the day we recorded. Apologies. Anywho, I asked him for some good bebop stories, and he did not disappoint. Apparently, after I left, uh, I was used as a teaching tool when people were learning... Uh, Ticketmaster, because uh, the first and probably only on sale I ever did, and I, I warned them, I said, I don't, I don't really think I'm ready to do this, y'all. I haven't spent enough time on Ticketmaster. Ah, it's fine. It's a Saturday. You'll be fine. Uh, it was the NSYNC concert in Biloxi, and there was also one going on sale simultaneously in Memphis. And you know how it was. It was like, can you check now? Can you check now? Can you check for Memphis? Can you check for Biloxi? Can you check? Mm -hmm. So I sold a lot of people who wanted to go to Biloxi Memphis tickets and vice versa. And uh, after about an hour, some very irate people came back to the ticket window, and I mean, it was sold out. I was like, I, I feel you, but there ain't shit I can do for you. I mean, it's three hours one way or the other. Keep them coming, Zuga. I had a homeless guy fall asleep in the store one Friday night and threaten to whip my ass when I woke him up and told him he couldn't sleep there. 
In fact, he told me, I'm a, you're lucky I'm a Christian or I'd whip your ass. I said, believe what you want to believe, man. I don't know about this homeless guy, but I do have enough retail experience to tell you that some people are just dicks. There was a guy in the store, and he, he asked me, he goes, you're going to give me a discount for all the stuff I'm buying, right? I was like, why would I do that? And he said, I'm fixing to give you all my money. I said, I'm probably going to see a dime of that on my paycheck, dude. Uh, so he asked me to go look for something in the back, and uh, he went up to Ellis at the counter and said, you're going to give me a discount, right? And Ellis was like, why, why would I do that, man? And the guy goes, because I'm going to come across this counter and beat your faggot ass if you don't. And then he, Ellis just popped the phone up and dialed 911. Zuga reminded me of something I'd not thought of in a very long time. When you were a Bebop staff member, every so often, you'd have to come in and work early hours before the store opened doing inventory. I remember coming so. in, in to do inventory one year. Um... Still rolling on ecstasy. <laughs> Everybody else was hungover. I'm like, let's do this shit. Let's go. Let's right now. Come on. I'm, we can have this done in three hours. I'm going home. Everybody gets a hug today. As I said, my time at Bebop was spent almost entirely backstage, so to speak. But there was a time when I seemed to be known to all as spiky hair guy from underground. And later, cactus from video library. I never minded being recognized, but... Well, this is Zuga we're dealing with. Random people, I remember going to a Jubilee Jam, random people were like, Bebop guy. By the end of the day, I was like, you know, I got a fucking name. I could relate to his frustration here, though. And, and you know, people always asking you questions outside of work. And say, hey, man, do y'all have that? I don't fucking know, dude. I'm not there. What, did you work at the tire store? Do you have size 18s Pirellis right now? Fuck you. Awesome Bebop employee stories aside... Well, no, let's have another one. It was a lot of fun having that payphone. They installed a payphone on the sidewalk right in front of the Maywood store. And mm -hmm. we used to prank call people when they were queued up, you know, camping overnight to, for, for concert tickets to go on sale. Particularly Kevin Harrington. He was a genius at that. And he could get those people out there so wound up, you know. And what to do about the lingerers. When you're wanting customers to get out of the store when it's closing time or, you know, five minutes till or five minutes past closing time and people are milling around and they won't leave. You put on John Coltrane Alm, you know, which is like 47 minutes of you know, <laughs> screaming tenor saxophone. <laughs> Nothing could clear the floor like that, you know. But seriously, folks, no, seriously, there's another bebop figurehead who must absolutely be recognized. Remember the Anne I referenced? She was like the first employee. Yeah, there were a few long timers. I guess the one that comes to mind first is going to be Anne Lampy. Um, she was there from pretty much the beginning of Bebop. She was there from the very beginning. Um, Anne, she worked at the Jackson Mall, went to the Ellis Avenue. And she was there up until the very end, uh, right before Bebop closed. Here's former customer and ever prominent Jackson musician Murph Casado. Always super nice to me. I, I you know, um, I would go there and, cause the stuff I would listen to wasn't something that people just carry. You know, it was like, hey, I need to order this. You know, it's like, oh, and she would be like, all right, what weird ass shit do you have for me now? And uh, she was always just super cool to me. And then like, you know. Um, when I was in the, in the Tough Loves, um, she would come to our shows and, you know, hang out and, and we she was my friend. Like, just, if I needed anything, I could ask her and she would do it. And, and again, Ann, uh, tough as nails, didn't take any shit off of you, um, but ultimately, you know, uh, 
you learned that she, you know, cared about you, and especially as time went on and she addressed her health issues and stuff. Ann Lampy was an important piece of the bebop puzzle, and I think if you did not before, you get the picture now. Bebop Productions and Bebop Records sparked the flame. They offered inspiration to young local bands, a place to sell their material, a place to play live. I would rotate Oral Socks, who, who, I'll tell you how I knew about Oral, I found out about Oral Socks by going to parties at Drake Elder's house. You know, Drake and Wayne uh, and, and Kathy, they not only ran the record stores, Bebop, but they had Bebop Productions and they did big concerts, but they also took young musicians under their wings, most of whom worked at Bebop, mm -hmm. and let them play at their private parties so that they would have venues to perform their music. Uh, Drake, the Germans crashed his, uh, I guess his wedding reception that they, he had at his house. It was his first marriage, and we showed up and played, you know, move aside, we're gonna play. And he let us, you know. Ah, yes, the Germans. We need to rap about the Germans, but first, in order to tell the 80s and 90s story as completely as possible, we need to do a little bit of a prelude in terms of the artists. No, I'm not pulling a Wayne and taking it roots. That would be a bit much for this project. And frankly, that story has already been told well elsewhere. For Play Dead, you should know about a Jacktown kid named Ed Inman. I kind of had the feeling that in the early to mid-70s and even into the later 70s to some extent that uh, the popular, the you know, FM rock, so to speak, had uh, gotten a little stale, maybe a little too sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And I, I got really, uh, I, I was really excited when the whole, you know, punk rock or new wave or whatever you want to, how that movement uh, started. Uh, I went to see, I saw Bex Pistols live in Baton Rouge and just kind of uh, sort of reignited my, my interest in music. The Sex Pistols did tend to get people motivated in some way or another. And I got more interested in, in local bands and, you know, I, I had my own little impromptu band for a little while, Ed Nasty and the Dopeheads. We put out a record in 78, I think we probably sold about seven of them. <laughs> Five years ago, it was actually reissued by a New York label called Last Laugh Records, which uh, you can still find it on eBay. That Ed Nasty and the Dope Ed stuff predated the time period on which we'll be focused, and I'd say it still holds up. And in researching for this show, I found it interesting that by the time we get to 1980 in Jackson, the Metal Kids and the Punk Kids, and what will eventually be called Alternative Kids, we're all kind of partying together. It was kind of a thrown together thing. The other guys had another band called SS. They were they were mostly uh, heavy metal kind of band, and they would go around and play the local clubs. And uh, but I, I would get up and sing with them sometimes. Yes, SS was metal, and Ed was punk AF. 
and they were quite incestuous. The thing about those early days, everybody was, was into music. It wasn't lines drawn at all. And um, that happened years later when it became like the thing to do. Oh, we can't be a part of that because we're not this. Now, everything was wide open. We were all friends. And those days... It was hard to find places to go hear music that wasn't a, just a typical cover band or, you know, and uh, the ones that did, we were all buddies. And uh, it's still that way for us. We're still friends, even though now those lines have been put out there. Okay, here's metal. You can't do that. You put these, these like, rules, and rules are so not punk rock. Definitely. So I guess we're talking 1980, 81, 82. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was very metal. At least there was a metal genre slice going on in the city. That's one of the members of SS, Chris Hall. And my parents were supportive. And uh, when I was 12, 13, I was playing the snare drum, marching drum, which I didn't like that much. Mm-hmm. But they sent me to band camp at Mississippi State University, which was a two-week program for young kids to, you know, encourage them in their music, but it was all marching band or orchestra type stuff, which I was not into, but I went and my roommate was Johnny Arthur and Johnny's roommate was Hunter Gibson. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who, what Hunter played at the time, but of course I later found out that Hunter was a fabulous piano player. Stay with me. I'm getting to the metal part. And when I was there, I met this guy named Tom Eason and Tom and I, struck up a friendship that lasts until this day. We're still very close friends. And it was me and Tom that formed the core of this band that we later called SS. And we were in high school. We liked heavy, hard rock. And we got quite serious. We started playing around whatever gigs we could find, 1980. And there wasn't much around, but we, in those days, you had keg parties. You know what that is? Yes, this man did just ask me if I know what a keg party is. That's fair. Well, alcohol laws were way more liberal, and people mm-hmm. would put on these keg parties, and they'd get a band. And hell, we did that. There was a guy named Tommy Turk, who was a big kind of keg party promoter in his days. Um, and we played quite a few of those and did pretty good. And then somehow, eventually, we found our way into Town Creek Saloon, mm-hmm. which at that time was a biker bar, but it had been around a while, and it was a perfect fit for the kind of music we were doing and where we were, and we did well. You know, there must have been something in the water fountain at Jackson's Murrah High School. That's where Drake and Kathy went. Ed Inman went there. That's where SS was formed and more hard rock hopefuls were studying up there. When 10th grade came around, uh, Max McDaniel and Jeff Barnes, and both of those guys were in Jet Screamer. Mm-hmm. They played Dons and all that as well. So anyway, but uh, Jeff and Max and I were best friends. We were the same grade, you know, which is a big deal when you're in high school. And Max is, was was a killer guitar player, even in 10th grade. I mean, he, he, he was a natural. That's future rock project player Andrew Tomlinson. Half the, half the days be stoned and in our Latin class, and we would be passing notes amongst the three of us about this band that we were in, and we'd draw ourselves on stage and big crowds and all this. And all we, all we knew was Max was a good guitar player, 
and the two of us were in the band with him. Now, remember that description from Andrew later. It will be mirrored to an extent by a Jackson band called the Eunuchs in more ways than one. 80, 81 okay. school year. But we knew we were going to be in a band, so uh, Jeff had played uh, drums in the junior high band. And so I was like, well, fuck it, I'll, I'll play a bass. So I went and bought a bass, and so now we had bass and drums, and, and the first couple of gigs, which were really uh, uh, high school parties that, yeah. uh, that we played, Jeff would beat on the cases that we had with some sticks. For Rhonda's sake, someone get Jeff a drum set. And so then uh, Jeff bought a drum set. Max's dad would call him Max the Marvelous. We called our, we said, we're going to be the Marvelux with an X. Now keep in mind, these bands, SS, the Marvelux, they're good. They're heavy. They're properly inspired. They're also mostly cover bands. But all that would soon change. Look, the best bands out there typically start doing covers. That's okay. Even Jackson icons, the Germans. On the next episode of Play Dead, you'll get that story, plus a Jackson band truly breaks through, making dreams come true, and crushing a couple in the process. Guys, I appreciate you very much for listening. If you appreciate me, you can do me one hell of a solid. Leave a positive rating and review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Do they have reviews on Spotify? Maybe look into that. It really helps, and we'll keep this thing going. Hey, make sure you subscribe so you know when the next episode drops. Also, links for music heard in this episode can be found in show notes. And if you've just fallen desperately in love with old JLU here, you can access a lot more content, usrinetwork.com. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Charlie, I don't know anything about Charlie's music, never really listened to him, but it used to annoy me that his mom was his manager and she would come in with him and stuff. And, and Sherry knew this, and we were working in the back. And you remember how that there was that wall, and you had to go out that little hall to get to the floor at, at Kenny Line. Mm-hmm. So one day Sherry comes around that wall, and I'm back there, and she's like, hey, Chris, Charlie Mars is out there. <laughs> I just went off on a tangent. Man, fuck that motherfucker. Did he bring his mommy with him, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, uh, yeah, she's out. Or, or, somehow she, she said something that made me want to go out on the floor. So I go out, I, as soon as I round that little wall, there's Charlie Mars been standing there the whole time. I was just like, what's up, dude? And walked out. <laughs>